for new episodes. You're listening to episode 58 of Sassmouth James podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. In her memoir, Detour, A Hollywood Story, Cheryl Crane recalls a story her grandmother Mildred shared about when she was a single mother struggling to bring up her daughter, Lana Turner. Mildred became a single parent after her husband, Virgil, was found dead on the street one day with his head smashed in and his left shoe and sock missing. He had been robbed of a bankroll he won while playing dice. During a game in an alley, he told gamblers about his daughter and how she was going to get a new bike for Christmas. After the funeral, Mildred took young Judy, she was not yet named Alana, to Los Angeles in hopes of a better life, just like many other people during the Depression, who looked at the sunshine and orange groves that surrounded the film industry as the land where dreams come true. The Turner women had a rough start. Once, they went three days without eating. Mildred eventually found work as a hairdresser. She spent long days in high heels doing hair and struggled to support her daughter and keep a decent place to live. When Judy was still very young, her mother took her to see the trains pass in the Los Angeles rail yard. They saw a car pass with a woman seated at the window. She was dressed in stylish clothes. She wore long white opera gloves. Suddenly, Mildred turned to her daughter and said, wave to that woman. Judy hesitated, feeling shy. Mildred told her to hurry and wave. When Judy asked why, Mildred replied, because she's your real mother. I've only been taking care of you. Little Judy became hysterical and started to cry. After she told her granddaughter Cheryl the story in the 1950s, Mildred admitted how much shame and guilt she felt whenever she thought about it. She didn't know what made her say that to her little girl. As we know, Judy was discovered while she was drinking a Coca-Cola after school one day. She took the name Lana Turner and had a sudden change in fortune. But most women and their daughters in the 1930s weren't so lucky. The Depression took a mighty toll on women, especially women who had children. When the economy made life a daily grind, an unyielding hardscrabble, it would be only natural for women to wish they were free of the burden. Women on their own could easily buckle under the pressure of trying to support little ones, which would naturally drive them to fantasize about giving them up. Molly Haskell, in her landmark study of women's pictures, From Reverence to Rape, The Treatment of Women in Movies, argues that one of the reasons films like Stella Dallas were so popular was that it gave women a chance to fantasize about being forced to give up their children, although on the screen it became a noble sacrifice. June Havoc puts it another way in her outstanding memoir, Early Havoc, which recalls the time she spent working in vaudeville. For when she was only two years old, she earned a living dancing on stage as the pocket-sized Pavlova. She ran away from the vaudeville circuit when she was 13 to marry, and then at 14 she entered a grueling dance marathon that lasted for months. 
June Havoc observed, I was born to an era that was too sick to have children. The Depression tore a hole in the social fabric that pushed women to the breaking point and made childhood a precarious state. Bare-knuckle survival broke the bonds of mother and child. The stark reality of life for women struggling through an economic disaster meant that when they could no longer care for their babies, they left them with an orphanage. In Bachelor Mother from 1939, Ginger Rogers happens to pick up an infant when she sees an elderly woman leaving it on a stoop of an orphan's home. Her character's life changes immediately and forever. Playing shop girl Polly Parrish, Ginger learns the definition of Occam's razor, that the simplest explanation must be the truth. A woman holding a baby must be the mother. It's the easiest way people put two and two together. When the orphanage door opens, a tall matron looks down at Polly Parrish cooing over the baby and invites them inside. A clerk in a white smock that makes him look like he rides an ambulance asks Polly for her name and where she works. Without thinking, she answers while she's still looking at the baby. Then Polly realizes what they assume, that she's there to give up her child. But her denials only make them more certain that she's the mother. The male attendant tells her that all mothers try to deny their children when they bring them there and suggests that she come clean. Polly looks like a bad liar because when she places the baby in the matron's arm, it starts to cry. Polly reacts to the cry and takes the child back in her arms for a test. The crying suddenly stops. She's caught between being liked and being mistaken for its mother. To step back for a moment in the opening scene when we first see Ginger as Polly Parrish, she's working behind the counter in the toy department of a department store during the Christmas holiday rush. Inside her sales book waiting for her on the counter is the kiss-off, a pink slip from management telling her they will not be needing her services any longer. Wearing a lace dicky that calls to mind a Victorian mood straight out of Dickens' A Christmas Carol, Ginger bends forward over her sales book on the counter as though she were socked in the breadbasket. She refers to the pink slip in her book to Denny Moore, her co-worker, as a Christmas card. None of that woe is me for Ginger. In the same year that she made do on a park bench with an apple and crackers for dinner, while she listened to a rich man bellyache in Fifth Avenue Girl, Ginger Rogers stares grim redundancy dead in the eyes. She may be sacked and without prospects during the season that's supposed to make everyone more generous and kind, but she does not drink from the deep well of self-pity. Stars in women's pictures from the 1930s, whether it's Ginger Rogers or Irene Dunn, Margaret Sullivan, Barbara Stanwyck, Joan Crawford, or Joan Blondell, played characters who believed that feeling sorry for yourself was more dangerous than sleeping on a park bench. Ginger doesn't let her chin wrinkle up when she asked anymore, Mary, is it hard for a girl to get into the Navy? Ginger's Polly Parrish has it so bad that she endures a job winding ducks all day, which would have most people driven witless, listening to the deafening din of ducks quacking all day. But a job behind the counter keeps Polly in a snug little flat of her own and the wolf from the door. 
Bachelor Mother remains a standout from a year of celebrated classics because it balances gallows humor with screwball relief. What could be more tragic than a woman alone in the world with a baby at Christmas? Screenwriter Norman Krasna doesn't make us wear a hair shirt, though. He knows we know how awful Polly Parrish has it. Norman Krasna, who's become one of my favorite screenwriters, said in an interview, I can't be persuaded away from comedy. I like comedy. It gives me more chances to do the kind of statements I want to make. I'm a big believer in comedy. I watch a Betty Davis picture, I admire it. But for five reels, I can't sit in the theater. For the sixth, I cry because the kid's in an oxygen tent. You can't do that in comedy. 30 seconds are dull, get it out, skip that. That's why I stayed in comedy. It was a bigger challenge, a bigger technique. When the interviewer told Krasna that Leonard Malton called his film social comedy, Krasna replied that you couldn't give him a better compliment. Krasna went on to explain in the interview that he's for the underdog and that his scripts for, say, The Devil and Miss Jones and Bachelor Mother were as much of a protest as he could make against the existing system. He declared, I certainly don't go on the wrong side. I will not write that if you have a lot of money, you're a better person. In his storytelling, Krasna follows Emily Dickinson's advice to tell all the truth, but tell it slant. His slant gives viewers the angle of vision of infectious comedy to build up an underdog, one who faces a heartless system of power. Usually in woman's pictures, a baby spells the end of a woman's freedom. And even if that's the lesson David Niven tries to scold her with when he waits for her to return from the dance hall, the picture tells us something else. What would normally be a tragedy, the unwed mother, becomes the ticket to social mobility. Ginger and baby John are swept into a rich mercantile family rather than to be left to starve on the street. The men in the Merlin family have wealth, power, and privilege, but Ginger knows what they don't know and how the world really works. She's not without the resources because she's a dame who knows the score. Rather than succumb to a down-and-out viewpoint, Ginger finds solutions for her predicament, whether it's dumping the baby with the man who can take care of it, lying when necessary, or using humor as a defense mechanism. I'm thinking of the way Ginger Rogers laughs in rich boy David Niven's face, the risk she takes in showing him up. Here, Ginger borrows Frank McHugh's laugh whenever she wants to show David Niven that he doesn't really know how things are. Ginger's flat, ha-ha, is an I told you so. It's a we'll see about that. She's a wiseacre with a deadpan laugh of the Medusa. Her monotone chuckle lobs a protest whenever she encounters a rich man who thinks he knows everything. Even when it makes him angry and sore, she doesn't back down with her, ha-ha. The genius and bachelor mother rests in two scenes that allow Ginger Rogers to show a blowhard that he doesn't know half as much as he thinks. The first is when the rich son of the department store owner, played by David Niven, turns up at Polly's door and interrupts her when she tries to feed the baby. He has brought her a book on childcare written by a man. How does she know she's doing it right, he asks as she spoons food into the baby's mouth. You might say this is a scene of mansplaining that at its most cringeworthy and glorious. 
He's armed with a book from a man who has 20 years of experience, so that instantly makes David Niven an expert. He reads from the book, beginning with the obvious. He tells Ginger she needs a spoon, men and their gear. Then he tells her to take a piece of gauze. Ginger's objections are cut off, hushed in the learned wisdom from a man's book. The instructions he reads out direct Ginger to put the food on the gauze and then gently rub the food into the baby's navel. Again, Ginger's reasonable objections are stifled. The Merlin scion concocts an official-sounding explanation. He rationalizes that it probably accustoms the child's stomach to the temperature of the food. It's all very logical, he assures Ginger. After all, a man with 20 years' experience and a printed book on the subject must know what he's talking about. The look on Ginger's face when she pries apart the pages and reveals his error in reading is one that most women know very well. It's an expression of long-suffering, of forced patience, of tongue dotted with tooth marks from biting it, of the sass withheld because his stupidity simply isn't worth the energy. The son of Merlin isn't comfortable with being shown up by a shop girl with a baby on her hands, and he turns petulant. Perhaps the best screwball scene in the picture is when ham-fisted David Merlin breaks the quacking duck when he's so flustered about the pages sticking together. He tells Ginger to return it, just return it, get a new one. When he declares it inferior merchandise and asks where it came from, he's even more rankled when she informs him that it came from John Merlin and Son. He sinks into his haughty routine and vows to have it exchanged, cued to the next set to the next day the brilliant scene with Niven skulking around the shop floor in an obvious disguise with a fedora turned down low. In a modern upgrade of Cyrano, Ginger stands next to the returns counter and feeds lines to the boss's son in disguise as he attempts to get a new dock. Behind the returns window, the clerk barks at Merlin to get in line. Then he wants answers to his questions. What's the trouble? How did it happen to break? Who's to blame? The only, that's only the warm-up for the big ask. Where's the sales slip? Sato voce. Ginger gives the only rational response. You can't expect me to keep a sales slip for everything I buy. The house would be full of them. So silly. She's impassive, leaving it to Niven to inject the appropriate umbrage for company policy. As a man who's not used to being told no, that he can't have what he wants, the shop owner's son turns rogue and simply boosts a new duck from the counter. Cue the gung-ho new floor walker who tackles the cloaked fedora figure along with two other men. If you doubt their reaction, pay attention the next time you see what little commercial authority does when a shoplifter is collared. Little wonder they didn't tear him apart over a cheap plastic duck. The telltale duck at the end unites the pair who are meant to be together, as we knew it would. I love that Ginger, as she prepares to blow town, though, when she thinks they might take away the baby, is still wearing the mink coat on loan. You'd have to pry it from my cold, dead hands, too. But Merlin begs her to marry him. Polly Parrish asks, and you still think I'm the mother of that baby? She follows that up with the wise, the wiseacre, ha ha, borrowed from Frank McHugh. 
My guess is that when most people think about Ginger Rogers, they recall the effervescent quality she brought to the screen with Fred Astaire in the 10 pictures they made together, starting with Flying Down to Rio in 1933, when they wowed audiences with the karaoke and stole the picture wholesale from Dolores Del Rio and Jean Raymond. People think of her ethereal beauty as she uh, danced in the blue ostrich feathers for Top Hat, or how cute she looked in the satin sailor outfit in Follow the Fleet, or Ginger washing her hair while stopping to listen to Fred sing in Shall We Dance. As lovely as those films are, Ginger Rogers left, left us a treasure trove of sassmouth dames on screen. In my hour of need, when I'm feeling low, what revives me most from Ginger's screen credits are the scenes where she gives out and tears strips from a man, or laughs in his face, ha ha. I must admit I'm not a huge David Niven fan in general, but he's very, very good in this picture. The scene that wins me over from him is when he's waiting in Polly's apartment with the baby. When she returns from the dance contest, he gives out to her with that high-hat bluster that a rich boy can dish out. The best part is when he mocks her dancing by waggling his arms above his head, and he makes those revolting noises. It's unthinkable that some man could disparage Ginger's prowess on the dance floor, but he's feeling miserable and petty and entirely justified in chastising a woman who dumped her baby with strangers to go out dancing. He's wrong about everything on every level, and yet Niven performs the scene with an earnestness that shows how unaccustomed he is to being the voice of moral authority. Remember, from what we know of his character, he stays out late every night carousing, and he doesn't stroll into work until the afternoon. He's a spoiled heir who has never had to care for so much as a houseplant, and here he is suddenly alone with an infant for three hours. He's the backbone of social order all of a sudden. He can trade Playboy for Potterfamilius almost as quickly as a new suit. As the rich and powerful store owner, Charles Coburn claims baby John for his bloodline after he sets eyes on him for less than a minute. His desire for expanding his family is as acquisitive as though he were adding a new department on the fifth floor of his shop front. At one level, when he says, I'd know that shit anywhere, it's hilarious because cuddly Charles Coburn sees himself in a plump infant. His face damp with tears, he cries over the baby boy as though he were given a second chance to live. But on another level, it reminds you in the audience how quickly you can get what you want when you're rich. Charles Coburn has the gift of taking an ogre and making him into a teddy bear. He's a man who can toss off the line, I don't care who the father is, I'm the grandfather, and make you want to pinch his cheek. I think everyone who worked with Coburn must have resigned themselves to him stealing scenes and getting the best lines. In her memoir, Ginger Rogers admits that she objected to the script. She didn't understand how everyone could suddenly accept the fact that Polly has a baby. She focused on looking at it from her character's angle rather than the larger social context that the satire was trying to draw. When Ginger appealed to producer Pondro Berman, he took the usual high-handed producer's line. 
Instead of talking to her about her concerns with the script, he went into defense mode, promising that every care was taken to protect her career and that no other woman in Hollywood was as well situated in her stardom. Oftentimes, there's an impulse to paint Ginger as difficult or demanding just because she had the neck to stand up to a studio executive. I'm not buying it for a minute. Without her mother, Leela, teaching her how to stand her ground, Ginger would have been stuck as a dancing partner for a male star. Think about the number of battles Ginger had in RKO, such as working with director Mark Sandrich, who never cared enough about her to give her a close-up. Or the time when they gave her a tatty stained gown to wear when she had her heart set on pale blue ostrich for that dance and top hat. Ginger knew she had to look after her own interests or men in the studio would be only too happy to pay her less, feature her less, and pass off any rubbish they wanted. No one should ever be called difficult for questioning a script. Gar Kanan, in his book, Hollywood, includes the kindergarten tune that they started each day with. How do you do, my partner? How do you do today? Let us dance in a circle. I will show you the way. On the first day of production, when Ginger Rogers reported to the set, Garson Kanan, the director, was a bit nervous. In his stellar book, Hollywood, he recalls how he greeted Ginger with an old nursery school rhyme each day. She surprised him from the very first day by replying with the second line of the nursery rhyme. Kanan's story about the kitty song establishes the improvisational spirit that seems to guide Ginger's best work. Ginger was an artist who thrived on collaboration. The carefree spirit of an innocent playground tune set the perfect tone for working days on Bachelor Mother. Norman Krasna said that one of the things he remembers most from working in the shoe department at Macy's was how tough the customers were and what it meant to have a job in the Depression. He used to fantasize that one day he would be so rich that he would apply for a job again like in Macy's, and then once someone was rude, he would respond with a firm, go fuck yourself. Thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned for episode 59 when I talk about Sylvia Sidney and You and Me from 1938.